0: This is part one of a two-part podcast series on bankinfosecurity.com. Hi, I'm Linda McGlasson with bankinfosecurity.com and today we're speaking with Dr. Marcus Jacobson, a professor at Indiana University, about phishing and some of the research he's been doing on it. Dr. Jacobson is also associate director of the Center of Applied Cybersecurity Research and a founder of Ravenwhite Inc., an RSA security spin off. He is the inventor or co inventor of more than 50 patents and has served as the Vice President of the International Financial Cryptography Association and is a research fellow of the Anti Phishing Working Group. Prior to his current position, he was Principal Research Scientist at RSA Laboratories member of technical staff at Bell Laboratories, and adjunct associate professor at New York University. He is an editor of the International Journal of Applied Cryptography and a group editor of the ACM Mobile Computing and Communications Review. His most latest book, Phishing and Countermeasures, was released last year. He is editor and co author of several upcoming books, including One on Crimeware with Semantic Press, Click Fraud, Cryptographic Protocols by Addison Wesley. All three of these are coming out this year. He has also served as the editor of the RSA Cryptobytes for several years. Dr. Jacobson researches fraud, social engineering, and phishing, and the prevention of these attacks. He has laid the foundations to the discipline of how to perform experiments and assess risks arising from socio-technical vulnerabilities in the context of current and potential future user interfaces. He consults to the financial industry and heads the effort at www.stopphishing. I'll go right ahead into the questions. In your most recent research, The Human Factor in Phishing, you showed the importance of understanding the psychological aspects of phishing. For the banks and credit unions who want to educate and protect their customers, what are some of the most important points they need to know about your findings?
1: I'd say that they could hire the most brilliant techies who know everything about cryptography and network security to secure their website and make it hacker-proof. They can pay companies like Cyora for quick takedown, and they could hire people like the guys at the Internet Law Group to go after the fishers and bring them to court. These are, of course, good things to do, but still, the clients might fall prey to phishing in large numbers still. Why? Well, first of all, having a safe, safe site doesn't mean that your clients will not be fooled to give out the information at sites impersonating your site. Your clients didn't come to your site to learn about security. They came to pay their bills, and, and that's their priority. Um, security is a secondary concern to them, and they may not even pay attention to warnings or the absence of the indicators that they're at the correct site. So if an attacker can deceive them to go to another site, uh, well, now your SSL protection doesn't do much good. And most people reacting to phishing attacks actually do so within a few hours before takedown really protects them. And even if, you, if it does help to bring a few fishers to court, it still doesn't undo the damages. So you still need to do more. Um, first of all, it's really important to realize that security isn't a matter of using SSL or um, reacting quickly to attacks. It's also a matter of designing the website. Site. And your email templates in a way that makes the attack harder. Um, And most of all, it's about anticipating the next moves of the attacker. This is not so easy, of course. Um, How could you know what they're going to do next? Um, Well, either you could have somebody in house or you could work with somebody who specializes in this, who looks at what features you've got, uh, what the vulnerabilities are of your features and of common anti-efficient countermeasures, and also psychologically. Who knows what average Joe will fall for? Um, for example, most people are now wary of the standard phishing attack in which the attacker impersonates their bank and asks the user to log in with $48. This is not so credible anymore. Uh, recent studies have found that if a client has a voicemail on his or her answering machine as they come home, um, and the voicemail says to expect an email requesting a password update request, Um next day, and of course the email uh, would refer to the voicemail, then the user feels very differently. This email that comes the next day, which says, now you need to log in within 48 hours, it becomes very credible. Um, So this might seem like a very complicated attack, of course. You first have to place a voicemail, you have to place a call and put voicemail in somebody's uh, answering machine. But I'm telling you, this is not a complicated attack and it quite spectacularly would increase the yields
0: what led you to do this research and why do we need to understand users and know what they will believe and what they will not
1: well let me answer this with uh, a couple of examples Um, several financial institutions Wish to authenticate themselves to their users when they send email, for example, so that their users will be less uh, likely to fall for spoofing attacks. Um, so, one very common way is that the uh, financial institution might say uh, the name of the person who receives it, the email and the four last digits of their bank account number or credit card number. And, um, and this is considered, in, in general, to be secure. Uh, but it has a, a severe flaw. Users, they don't distinguish between an email that says the first four and the last four digits of their credit card. So to most users, that seems like um, equally safe. Uh, you know, it said something about your credit card number, and that's, of course, um, personalization. Um, and, and most consumers don't know but of course, all Everybody in banking, the banking industry knows that the first four is largely d- determined by the financial institution. So a fisher who picks up on this could um, you know, send out email that says to and the name of the person and that's very easy to find out and then authenticate themselves supposedly by saying uh, the first four digits of your bank account or credit card number is the following. And the user who receives this uh, will automatically believe that this is legitimate because it has an authentication that he or she has gotten used to. The bank has trained them to accept an authentication of this general format. And even if he or she looks at the credit card, which hopefully security-minded people do, it will seem right still. And so uh, fishers could actually abuse an apparent uh, security feature and turn it into security flaw. Um, and this is something that we need to understand what the user falls for in order to understand that the last is not a good authentication measure also you need to anticipate how your features and your advertisements may play in the hands of the attacker for example say that a bank um, like Chase has this alert service um, if you uh, if you sign up for it and you're a Chase bank client then every time you perform a transaction on a certain type, you get an alert, whether on uh, by phone or by email. Consider the email case now. Um, a bike like Chase really need to register chase-alerts.com and alerts-chase.com, and they own the, these two uh, domains because if they don't, these domains will seem incredibly plausible to a user who receives an email appearing to come from Chase um, and having these links embedded for example assume for a case that Chase did not own these and I were to register them and I were a fisher, then I could send you an email that would seem incredibly plausible to you and ask you to follow these links and as you arrive at the target of course it would look like a, a Chase banking site So this um, is about the features of the financial institutions also you could consider advertisements um, one sneaky advertisement could be um, mounted by Fisher's as an attack to say look we're at Citibank are very proud of our newest services and we know we know you're not banking with us but we'd like you to switch if you switch today we'll match what you're putting into the your account up to the first hundred dollars and um, in order to transfer money, you could follow this link and just take it directly from your bank. And this way, of course, what the Fisher does is he achieve, achieve, achieves two goals. First of all, he doesn't need to target Citibank customers. Normally, the Fisher has to know whom they're targeting or just be lucky. But here, they're targeting everybody except those who are with Citibank. So they get a much larger portion of recipients who find it plausible. And second... Um, They of course get the uh, ACH or other information that allows them to take money out of the existing account. They're not trying to establish an account with Citibank and they're not worried about credentials that the user would give in order to establish this account. What they want are the credentials of the account from which the user supposedly would transfer the funds. Uh, So these are examples of how features and potential features or advertisements could play into the hands of the attackers.
0: In your paper, The Human Factor in Phishing, you noted information security specialists make the mistake of designing security to protect themselves. Why is this not sufficient to protect the average consumer? And what are some of the examples you can give to illustrate this?
1: There are several answers to those questions. First of all, security specialists They obsess about security day out and day in. They think of nothing else. And if they get a phishing email, it's amusement. Uh, My colleagues and I, we pass around phishing emails and compare them, and we all have a good laugh. Uh, So security specialists, they will have a warped sense of what will fool people. It's very easy to start getting used to the level of threat and being so abnormally uh, paranoid and able to distinguish attacks that you don't realize that the average consumer aren't at the same level. Um, And also, most security specialists are very technology-focused. They're trained as computer scientists, and they understand computers, algorithms, networks, but they don't necessarily understand human psychology, Um, not like con artists do. Con artists make great fishers. If you could have a con artist-turned-security specialist, you really get the best of both worlds. Somebody who knows security and lives and breathes deceit.
0: So what are some of the things that people judge emails for when determining its authenticity? And what do you think creates trust?
1: This is a topic I've done uh, a lot of user studies on, and the answers are interesting, or the answers, there are several of them. First of all, um, the average uh, client of the bank uh, looks at an email and makes sure it looks right. Uh, It has to have the logos, and it has to have the right general format. And um, also, it needs to sound right. Whatever the uh, material is in it needs to be contextually relevant. First of all, it needs to be from their bank. And so fishers could either uh, hope that they hit people that are uh, with a given bank. That becomes easier with smaller financial institutions like credit unions that are geographically located um, in a way that could be uh, associated with the domain name to which the fishers send email. For example, if somebody is with Indiana University, uh, they're much more likely to be with Indiana University credit union than somebody who is not, and vice versa. And so they can increase the the yield in this manner. Also, there are actual ways in which fishers can learn whom you're banking with. And this is rather uh, upsetting. Um, I have a small demo on my web page. It's called Browser Recon. Uh, It allows anybody who runs a website to which they can attract users to look at the browser history of that person's machine and determine what places they've been to. And, of course, if you know that somebody's been to Citibank, you could safely safely assume that they're a Citibank customer. But I could even look if they've been to the logout page of Citibank, and then I could tell for sure that they, they have to be a Citibank customer. Also, um, you could base it. Th- that's somewhat advanced. Still, you could plainly just base it on IP address. You could figure out whom, pe- what bank somebody's likely to be with based on their IP address. Um, so that's the second thing, the context of it, um, which is also including the text. If the uh, material that causes people to log in somewhere, which which is what we call the lure, if it sounds plausible. And uh, if it hasn't been seen before, it has to have a psychologically appealing and new twist. And then there are minor things like disclaimers. Uh, In a study that I've been part of performing, uh, we found that uh, if people are are confronted with two emails um, that look the same, but for the fact that one has a legal disclaimer at the bottom, and if you ask people to rate the likely authenticity um, of the, these two emails, then everybody says that the email with the disclaimer is the most legitimate. And when you ask people why, uh, they would say that, well, fishers, they don't need legal disclaimers, and uh, why would they do that? Um, and the legal disclaimer gives this warm, fuzzy feeling of trust that, um, of course, is very easily uh, obtained by a fisher the same way, just put a legal disclaimer onto their email. And um, also, people feel much more comfortable if an email has a phone number to which you could call if you have questions. They're not intending to call necessarily, um, but the fact that there is a phone number makes them feel like somebody else would call, and um, if this was a fraudulent email, it would, of course, be discovered in the process. Um, So you could put an email... You could have an email sent by a fisher which contains um, the phone number, whether it's of the legitimate bank or a number that nobody will pick up, or even a phone number that is controlled by the fisher, um, where uh, somebody will pick up and perhaps even ask for your mother's maiden name. Um, So phone numbers is another way that uh, fishers could increase their yield. Also, plausible domains. Um, people are much less likely to fall for a phishing attack in which the URL that they're asked to go for is an IP address. Um, people do rely on NOS over to some extent, and and the yield almost falls in half um, if the um, if the IP address if there's an IP address as opposed to a real normal domain there, and registering plausible sounding domain something that has to do with the bank or whether you put the bank's name in a subdomain that really does increase the yield with one of my students we performed tests that evaluate exactly the degree to which this is the case to which people find it more plausible. and this is not laboratory experiments where people know that they're uh, they're being studied but these are actually what we call naturalistic studies of course we're not fishing anybody we're not stealing anybody credentials but other than that, it looks just like a real attack. And we could determine that these are the things that people really do look at and do fall for, um, for example, cussing name attacks, when they evaluate, evaluate an email to determine whether it's, it's legitimate or not.
0: So you're saying if a consumer sees a padlock on a website, do they trust it more than one without? What are some of the examples you can give in what's going wrong with the SSL certification procedure and can you explain to our audience what SSL certification is?
1: Um, SSL is a way, a cryptographic technique used to uh, secure the connection between a site and um, a user who connects to the site and uh, so that nobody can tap into the conversation and uh, just by perhaps uh, routing the traffic and thereby learning what information is sent. You don't want anybody to listen into to the credentials you send. And uh, SSL has become one of the uh, distinguishing aspects of whether something is a phishing site or not. Typically, phishing sites don't have SSL locks on them. Um, but unfortunately, it's not. this is not so important because uh, the average consumers they don't notice the absence of the uh, the lock it's studies that I've been part of performing um, have shown very conclusively that people notice the inclusion of incorrect information like if you call them Joe and their name isn't Joe they would immediately notice but people won't notice the absence of material for example um, if there's not a lock at the site, um, it, then that is not so noticeable as if you add something. And that's, of course, a concern to, uh, for example, financial institutions like Bank of America that rely they rely on site key, which is a visual mark that people have to recognize in order to know that it's a site. So what we've shown is that it's not always that people do notice. And you could even deceive them by saying uh, in an email that uh, because of the... Um, American with Disabilities Act, we are now changing uh the image that you're going to see and uh, here just below uh, you'll find your current image and now please go to this site and you the official would um, give a hyperlink there and acknowledge that you agree to this but first of course you need to uh, authenticate and that so that we know it's you and and that's one very bad way um, but but Back to the SSL, uh, people don't notice it so much and uh, people are also don't notice where a lock is, if there is a lock. For example, the SSL lock should be in the Chrome portion of the browser, this gray part around, or in the address bar, depending on what kind of browser you're using. Uh, many banks actually put it inside the content. Um, this is to signify what's called an SSL post which means that once you do press submit, you've entered your username and your password, Uh, then you start an SSL session before the credentials are are sent. And and banks use the lock logo inside the content portion in order to signify that this is the case. But anybody could put um, a lock image inside the page. Um, and also, you could use what's called a Fav icon attack. If you go to my webpage, for example, you will see a lock in the address bar. And many people might think that this is an SSL lock, but this is just the Fav icon. Um, this is the small icon that you see. For example, if you go to NewYorkTimes.com, you'll see a small logo that represents New York Times. And anybody, any site can set this l- small logo in any way they wish. And I can set it to, to a lock particular. Um, but there are also other ways in which you could put a lock in the chrome, or what appears to be the chrome. So you could have, in several browsers, a chromeless window. And then the content of this window will have material that looks like chrome with a lock. So to anybody looking at this window, it looks like a normal window, whereas in fact, it is a window without the chrome, without this gray frame where the content has a frame and a lock. But the biggest problem really is that people do not pay attention.
0: Here's a follow-up question to that answer. What are some of the educational efforts taking place to change consumers' reaction to phishing and how effective is it?
1: Well, banks have to educate their clients to some extent about phishing and online fraud and they do it of course Uh, but this is dry descriptions and uh, screenshots and it doesn't really teach people to understand phishing and also it's not attractive enough that people feel like they want to read it if anything it's a little bit scary and intimidating and so first of all they don't necessarily target the people who need this information and second the presentation doesn't make it very easily digestible. And it might even be just a couple of screenshots of known attacks and not quite in in any instruction of how to spot versions of this or how to understand the underlying mechanism. Also, popular media has a lot about identity theft. For example, Reader's Digest last year carried two stories on identity theft and what to do. But these are very... um, short and dry stories, um, they give a couple of uh, suggestions like don't click on links and you know all of these things that we're used to hearing. But banks do send out emails where you do have to click on links. So it's hard for the consumer to know what are the good links and what are the bad links. And it all boils down to understanding what is going on. And that's something that is not very well taught, in my opinion. Uh, similar, the FTC has educational effort same thing. Um, it's somewhat um, abstract and dry, and it doesn't really appeal to people in, in a way that makes them immerse themselves in it. Now, there are people who have realized this and have tried to change this. For example, Lori Crane, one of my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, she uses video games uh, to teach people about fishing, and, and they've uh, noticed quite improved rates of people's understanding of what is fishing. Uh, First of all, because they manage to present it in a way that is appealing. So people will sit down and actually um, participate in this. But also, it manages to become less abstract, and uh, more people can relate to it, and that's, of course, good. Also, um, I have, as part of my efforts, I've developed a comic strip that uh, you could see a couple of, you could see, two uh, panels of it in the paper that we were talking about, the human factor in phishing, which is available on my webpage. Um, and, and this material is meant to make it very easy for the average consumer to understand um, important aspects of phishing and identity theft and, and what to do to avoid it. And in a way that is somewhat easily generalizable. So it's not about one particular attack. It's about what is happening and how can you understand it and how could you uh, detect a new version of this.